Hello and welcome to 100% Real with Ruby. Today it is another anti-wellness wankery episode and today, what are we going at today? We are going at the continuous glucose monitors, we're going at the people that fear monger around insulin, the people that fear monger around blood glucose levels, blood sugar levels, insulin doing this, like all these events. And it's kind of funny because at the same time, the last I checked, Jordan Syatt is doing some wacky challenge where he purposely spikes his blood glucose and shows how much it turns him into an obese rat. I'm kidding. Nothing happens except his blood glucose goes up and then it goes back down again. But I'm going to let Tom introduce the whole glucose, glucose thing. But let me give you a primer on insulin. Insulin is not a fat storage hormone. It is a transporter hormone in that it transports things into cells. It doesn't just transport things into fat cells. It also transports things into muscle cells. But if you're insulin sensitive, if you do some stretching, if you go for a walk, which we know going for walks helps bring your blood glucose levels down after you eat, helps regulate your blood sugar levels. The more muscle mass you have, the more activity that you have in a day, the more insulin sensitive you can make yourself because you're moving muscles around and there is a transporter that helps bring things into the cell, which is non-insulin mediated. So it's not really to do with insulin. It's just a different channel that has nothing to do with insulin, but it does help regulate your blood sugar and bring the blood sugars into the muscle cells. Now, when insulin is available, that's when you're in a fed state. And that is signaling to your body, hey, we have fuels in our bloodstream. We need to shove them into cells. So that's what it does. You can have really high insulin levels through the day, but at the end of the day, at, well, at the end of, let's just say at the end of a period, because things don't just happen in days, they happen in days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks. Over a long period of time, if you have more insulin above the curve spikes versus your fasted states, which includes when you sleep below the curve, wherever that balance is, kind of like muscle protein breakdown, muscle protein synthesis. If you have more synthesis happening, your muscles grow kind of thing. And if you have more breakdown happening, your muscles disintegrate into ashes of nothing. Jokes. But the same thing kind of applies there in that if you are in a surplus over time, yes, okay, now that insulin is going to lead to you storing whatever it is, substrate, as fat. But if you're in a deficit, no matter what the insulin spike, you're going to lose fat. It just works that way. But if you have hormonal imbalance, then, okay, maybe you are still going to look like a softer version of yourself, which is where it, having a coach to look over things can really help a lot. But that being said, let's hand this over to Tom because apparently it's this massive thing in the UK with the blood glucose glucose goddess going on, going on about how oats make you fat and how you need to eat oats like some 
rich princess in order for it not to spike your glucose. So take that away. Yeah, so the UK has always had a very weird, like, popular nutrition scene in that when I was a kid, two of the most popular TV shows was one called Fat Families, where some guy who, to my understanding, has no relevant qualifications, uh, would go to a family of people who were all overweight, had obesity, and just kind of shout at and shame them for TV. Um, Like, it was really bad. Um, He had his stupid little squeaky voice, and he's like, right, I'm going to go and see some real fatties. And it w- that was like the general messaging um, that were that predominated across UK TV. And then another one was called uh, Diet Swap, where you had a person with morbid obesity and a person who probably had anorexia. Super um, size. Super size versus super skinny. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, and they'd swap diets. And if you look back at those with any kind of understanding of the psychological things that go into nutrition like those were horrendous the amount of damage that those tv shows must have done to the relationship that people have with food for like generations was obscene but anyway so that was that was the popular tv thing and so because of that in tabloid media and such the general public has a general interest in nutrition to the point that they will vaguely understand that the daily mail which is like the worst tabloid newspaper in the world um will regularly print that carrots cause cancer or whatever. Um, now, in this kind of milieu, um, there's also within the UK a very distinct class distinction related to nutrition and nutrition habits. Um, something that people need to understand about the UK is that we've got a very deeply entrenched class system. Um, we effectively still have an aristocracy and there's a massive north-south divide. So I live in the northeast. The average wage in the county that I live in is, I think it's about £24,000 a year. Um, whereas if you look at the average wage in somewhere like Kensington down south, it's about eighty five. Um, so there's, there's this big distinction. Now, what that means is that you've got a lot of people who have been primed to be very interested in nutrition and who have an awful lot of disposable income and who have been sold this idea that nutrition and health and all of that thing needs to be something that you pay a hell of a lot of attention to. And the issue you've got there is that these people don't have any real problems. Um, These are not people with diabetes these are not people who are overweight these are people who are very easy to sell on the idea of eating organic avocados and stuff because well they're begging out to be sold things and they've got loads of disposable income now in this scene you've got the likes of jamie oliver who throughout like the early 2000s went on this big campaign to say that um children should be fed organic fruits and vegetables and then he he did this one of the most incredible scenes i've ever seen on tv um jamie oliver's in a classroom of kids who eat chicken nuggets right and he shows them how chicken nuggets are made so he gets a chicken carcass that's been that's had like all of the meat removed and he shows them and they're all like that's disgusting and then he blinds it up and makes chicken nuggets and then the kids all eat them and jamie oliver cries like he literally cries about it it's the funniest shit i've ever seen in my life um 
because he assumed that if the kids were disgusted by the thing, they would still be disgusted by the chicken nuggets. But that's not how it works. Now, in all of that, and I know that sounds like a bit really big tangent. Um, we are now starting to have people like a gentleman called Tim Spector. Now, Tim Spector is a fairly well-renowned epidemiologist. He was quite uh, significantly involved in a lot of the early research around COVID-19. Um, very well-published, well-respected researcher. Um, and he was also quite influential on the Human, Human Genome Project. Like, he's a big deal. He's well-credentialed. He's a real scientist. But he's not a nutritionist. He's not a dietitian. He's an epidemiologist. And he seems to have taken a personal interest in nutrition over the last few years and just has repeatedly said wild shit. <laughs> um, one of my favorite quotes of his, not quotes, but like one of my favorite things from him is he talked about um, an experiment that his lab did on uh, people who drank regular Coke well, basically, two people were asked to eat the same diet, um, and then some of them were given regular Coca-Cola, and some of them were given Diet Coke. And what they found was that the people who ate the Diet Coke gained weight. Now, in an interview about this, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is as close to a quote as I can get it to remember. Um, he was like, now, obviously, this wasn't really controlled, so we don't really know what else they were eating, but... And then just like like brushes over that as if this is a really minor point about the study and then went on to basically imply that the artificial sweeteners in diet coke cause obesity based on no evidence apart from this small trial that he's run that wasn't well controlled and he just kind of brushes it off so that's the type of person that tim specter is however because tim specter is a well-renowned researcher his words have a lot of clout and then if you go back to what i was just saying about the um fairly well-off people in the UK who've been sold this idea that nutrition is something that they need to pay attention to, and they've got loads of disposable income. Once you put, combine that with Tim Spector, what you end up with is the Zoe Project. Now, the Zoe Project is, I have coined it Waitrose Wankery, because Waitrose is, I don't know if you have them elsewhere, but Waitrose is like the really expensive supermarket. Like it's not better than any other supermarket, but you go there and you shop and cost 50% more. And the benefit you get from that is you get to feel wealthy now. The food is the same. It's just more expensive. And there's lots of them down south around expensive estates and stuff. So people will buy at Waitrose because of the prestige of carrying a Waitrose carrier bag. That's it. It's brand marketing in supermarket form. Um, and this is the Zoe project. It's a extremely well marketed, nothing idea that is sold to people with a lot of disposable income and no real problems. Now, as part of the Zoe project, you have this idea of personalized nutrition. So these are people who have no health complaints. They do not have obesity. They do not have issues with performance, but they can be sold. Well, if you just do more, you can be more healthy. Yeah, you're absolutely fine now, but just think how much more fine you could be if you bought all of these supplements as well. Yeah, you're fine now, but just think how more fine and more healthy and more demonstrating your affluence through the active pursuit of health you could be if you wore a continuous glucose monitor. 
Now, a continuous glucose monitor is a device that's usually attached to the arm of a person or elsewhere in your body, but it's often on your arm, of a person who has type 1 diabetes. They can be really useful because people with type 1 diabetes, their body doesn't produce insulin. And so what they do is they have to dose themselves with insulin before they eat carbohydrate. And there's a lot of clever math that they have to do that's very individualized to work out how many units of insulin they have to use in order to be able to eat a certain amount of carbohydrate without becoming hyperglycemic and having loads of problems. Um, if you get your dosage wrong, you have hyperglycemia where you have too much glucose in the blood and that's bad. Or even worse, if you give yourself too much insulin, then you go hypoglycemic and that can cause a real problem because your blood glucose dips too low. Um, so they require, not require, but they can use continuous glucose monitors to kind of regulate this a lot better. Um, but the Zoe project is selling the idea that these are useful for healthy people. And from the Zoe project, this is where a lot of this messaging is coming from. Now, um, Ruby mentioned the glucose goddess. She's part of the Zoe project. It kind of reminds me of Gwyneth Paltrow sitting on her throne with a bloody, what's yeah. prestigious way of doing things. Yeah, so it's Gwyneth Paltrow, English version. It's Gwyneth Paltrow with added aristocracy, essentially. Um, but so the, the, the glucose goddess's whole thing is obviously we have people who have insulin resistance. So whether this is uh, you've got type 2 diabetes or you've got PCOS or you've got prediabetes. And what you can do if you've got any of these conditions is you can test your fasting blood glucose level. Now, your fasting blood glucose level should be at a certain point. I don't remember what it is. Um, I want to say it might be like 10 units per deciliter, but I, I might have completely made that up, so it doesn't matter. Ruby, you can Google what's what's healthy it, fast and blood glucose. Well, in our reading, it's around 4 point something. 4 point something, whatever it is. Anyway. In American readings, it's like 80, 100, I don't know, something in the 80s, because we just do not have the same metrics. Healthy fasting blood sugar is 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. In there American terms, there we go. Yeah, so it was 7 to 10 grams per milliliter, and that's where I got the 10 from. God for that, I didn't make it up. Right, so that's where it's supposed to be. Now, if you have insulin, and if you have insulin resistance, what will happen is, at baseline, your body produces insulin as it's supposed to, and insulin is a hormone. So how hormones work is they're nonspecific. So your body will secrete a hormone just into the blood and it kind of floats around, but it's only able to attach onto receptors on certain different tissues. So all of your body is exposed to insulin, but that insulin is only going to bind onto its receptors, which are predominantly on the liver and on your muscles. Um, but if those receptors are not very sensitive, that means that you require a greater secretion of insulin to have the same blood glucose lowering rate. And usually what this means is that a person with insulin resistance will have elevated fasting blood glucose because at baseline, their body is not able to maintain blood glucose at the relatively low level that it normally would be. And then what you do is you measure... Um, so you measure fasting blood glucose and then you measure blood glucose after you have been given some glucose. And you can use those two measurements to kind of determine whether or not someone's insulin secretion is working properly. And this is where you hear this thing about insulin spikes. Now, in medical stuff, a spike is just like a relative increase. So if you've got a cortisol spike, 
all that means is your cortisol has gone up in response to something. If you've got a blood glucose spike, it just means that you've eaten some glucose and your glu blood glucose has gone up. That's all that means. It's, it's a very normal thing. It's what you would expect to happen after you've eaten glucose, unless you shit yourself and that's how the glucose leaves. Like it's got to go in your blood somehow. And when it goes in your blood, it's going to increase. So you get a spike. Um, and glucose goddess's whole thing is that in people who do not have diabetes, an insulin spike should reach a certain level. And if your insulin spike goes above that, that is bad. And she, to my knowledge, has very little evidence to back this up on. But it sounds very convincing. And if you're the type of person that's been told that you need to spend loads of money on wellness in order to be the healthiest, and you're also the type of person who likes to do something called conspicuous consumption, which is where you spend lots of money in a way where you're seen to spend lots of money, a really good way to do that is to sign up to a service that costs you a couple of hundred pounds a month to have a continuous blood glucose monitor on your arm, even though you don't need one. Um, because you've been sold this idea that you need to maintain these really low insulin levels. And I'm aware that this sounds kind of conspiratorial and wishy-washy, but that's literally the whole thing. That's it. It's just a very clever sales pitch to people who've got more money than problems. And I understand why people get bought into this idea that, oh, insulin spikes are bad and we need to control insulin and we need to control blood glucose because it makes sense. So, we humans have this bias towards something called cognitive ease, which is where basically if something makes sense and sounds intuitively correct, we just believe it, which is why you always need to be extremely cautious about people who appeal to common sense, because all common sense means is gut intuition. And all gut intuition means is that provides cognitive ease and it sounds right. So if I was to say insulin is a storage hormone, therefore, if insulin spikes really high, you store stuff. So what you need to do is keep insulin down and you won't store things. That makes sense. Sounds about right. So it's really easy to sell people stuff on that. The problem is it's just a very incomplete picture because that's not how it works. And so ultimately, my my point is this. To stop fucking monologuing. Um, you don't need to worry about insulin spikes. The only reason people say that you need to worry about insulin spikes is because they're trying to sell you something that is going to try and control them insulin spikes. If you have insulin resistance because you've got some kind of diabetes or you've got PCOS or something like that, that is a problem. But that is not something that you manage by managing your insulin secretion. It's something that you manage by managing your nutrition and exercise. You don't need to tackle insulin directly. This is kind of like if you're driving your car and there's smoke coming out of the bonnet, you're targeting the smoke. It's like, no, you need to look at what the car's doing and why the smoke's coming out the bonnet. You can't just put a bit of tape over where the smoke comes out and say it's fine. Um, you're targeting the wrong thing. Insulin is the fireman. The fire is everything else. And focusing on insulin is done because it creates a biologically, biologically plausible sounding reason for you to buy something. It's okay if you monologue because I <laughs> will take my own monologue right now because we did a podcast where we pretty much said the same thing on ice baths and all those other things where the people mm. that tend to worry themselves about the nuances and mm. friggin' hundreds and thousands on the bread instead of the bread itself are the people that don't typically need to be worrying about it. The people that actually need to worry about the the, the sugar and the food and the carbs are typically the ones that don't really 
want to do all that much to change. Like if we are actively pursuing a healthy, fit lifestyle, we can chase a better health status without trying to manipulate our carbs to the nth degree. Now, you can lose weight without sacrificing your favorite carbs, your favorite sugar, yes. And blood sugar spikes are healthy. They're normal responses from your body. And it's not bad or wrong for your blood sugar to spike because it's going to go back down. Like you said, it is a spike. It is an acute raise that will come back down again. Now, if it goes up too high and it comes back down again because you had something that's really high in sugar, something that's by itself like naked carbs with the like naked carbs, then maybe, okay, cool. That is going to have an impact on you in the terms of now you're going to be hungry again. You might be craving more sugar now that you've just come down from a high, but there are ways to go around this, such as having more complex carbs, more fibrous carbs, having protein with your carbs. Like the, there, the, there are ways to blunt that blood sugar rise. And this is also why going by the, 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 the glycemic index is useless because we don't eat carbs alone. We eat carbs with other foods, with veggies, with fruits, which are carbs in themselves, but they come with fiber. We eat carbs in, like we eat more mixed meals than we do just carbs themselves. Like we're not just eating sugar out of a bag either. And I have a list of myths that I just want to quickly run through. I just looked up some myths on it. Yes. Hands up. I just wanted to pick up on that because that's a perfect example of something that I think of, of kind of what I was talking about. So when you were saying there, if uh, your insulin spikes too high because you've just eaten naked carbs, then what you really need to do is just eat like protein and fat with those carbs in order to bring the insulin spike down. That's exactly it. And this is why I always think you need to be cautious about people who talk about insulin, right? Because here's the thing, yeah? What is the most basic nutrition advice that you get from, like, government guidelines? It's eat about three meals a day and make sure they're mixed meals. And that's all you, we've just recommended. A person who talks about insulin, all they're really saying is, if you eat a bunch of carbs as a snack, that's probably indicative of like a relatively poor diet because you're just eating like bags of sweets. So what you should probably do is just focus on meals that are mixed and they will dress that basic bitch nutrition advice up as, oh, if you wear this continuous glucose monitor, you'll see that at 3 p.m. when you ate that snack, that was far too much of a glucose presentation and your insulin spiked really high. So what you need to do is you need to ensure that you keep those insulin spikes really low. All they've told you to do is eat mixed meals but they've charged you however much a month to wear a continuous glucose monitor and brought you into this idea that this is a really novel nutrition idea. And they're literally repeating government guideline recommendations to you. They're just dressing it up. And that's all. It's a scam. It's a massive scam. Like if you go to somebody and you have to pay them 500 pounds for them to tell you that when you eat a bag of sweets, it's probably not that great for fat loss, then you're lost. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And it's a funny thing as well, because protein also raises insulin. Like it is just as insulogenic as carbs. But the mm. thing is, it also 
triggers the glucagon receptor, which helps recycle the blood sugar in the system and bring it back into the cell in itself. So it kind of manages itself. It's just that it's going to show as a spike when you're measuring your blood glucose levels and people respond to different carbs differently. And if you are less insulin sensitive, if you sit on your butt most of the time, then you're going to have a different reading too. One of the myths is that low-carb diets or keto diets are the only way to manage blood glucose. Number one, if you are a diabetic and you're going low-carb or keto, that is that can be really fucking harmful and can put you in hospital or death, and it can make you go hypoglycemic. So please don't do dumb shit and cut your carbs. Number two, like Tom said, there are many ways outside of food itself, which I know that you meant when you said you don't have to manage the insulin part. You don't have to micromanage your food part for the insulin. That is where exercise comes in. That's where moving your body comes in. That's where having a healthy lifestyle comes in. Did you know that your insulin resistance increases slash insulin sensitivity drops just from a shitty night of sleep? Like there are so many factors that impact your insulin sensitivity, your hormones, your training status, your stress status. So looking at just food as the thing to target, and this this comes down to everything as well. Like someone's feeling really shit. What am I eating that's wrong? It has to be this. It has to be this. Someone's having a bad gut issue. There's something wrong with my food. What about the other things that can be causing the bloating? What about the stress? What about the fact that you're overtraining? What about the fact that you had a shit night's sleep? What about the fact that you haven't even set your ass down all day? Like we just want to target food as a main culprit for everything for so many different things. And then when people want to reverse diet in quotation marks, they look as to food as the only thing that is a pawn to move around. No, there's energy in and energy out, which is a part of a many different things. You can increase your food astronomically if you also increase your activity, you start training harder. But if you then, which people do completely wrong with their friggin' reverse diets, oh, let's slash all your cardio out. Let's up your food completely and let's just leave your training at a low level. Um, How about, no, that is not how you reverse diet and that's why people end up getting a lot of fat back after dieting because their coaches do dumb shit with them. Now, myth number two. Insulin resistance is solely caused by excess sugar consumption. I pretty much covered that in the last one. No, actually, insulin resistance is also caused by high saturated fats in your diet. But most of all, it's from a calorie surplus over time that leads to insulin resistance. Having extra body fat, insulin resistant. Being sedentary, insulin resistant. So no, it is not excess sugar consumption on its own. There's even, a, there's even a genetic component to that. Like the amount of things that lead to someone getting type 2 diabetes is really complicated. And when people say, oh, if you eat a high carb diet, you get insulin spikes all the time. And that's what causes type 2 diabetes. It's, it's such a radical oversimplification that it's bordering on just being wrong. <laughs> it's yeah. So yeah, as you were. All carbohydrates are bad for blood glucose levels. Who's to say that carbohydrates are bad for glucose levels at all? What is wrong with blood glucose levels going up? It is part of human nature. Too much processed food 
yeah, that is bad for your health because the more processed shit you have in your diet, the more junk you have in your diet, that's displacing the healthful stuff that could be in there, the fiber, the things that promote good health, that then lead to good gut health, that then allow you to be more insulin sensitive. So again, zoom out, the carbs themselves aren't bad, blood glucose levels going up is not bad. The next myth, there's two more. Blood glucose levels are only influenced by food. I think we already covered that one. Next one, people with diabetes can never eat dessert. I think I covered that one already by saying mm-hmm. that you, you don't want to go low carbon, you don't want to go keto. I have a diabetic client who I actually set up with someone who wanted consolence that she can actually eat the carbs because she came to me fearing fruit, fearing white carbs, fearing all of these things. And she's been coaching with me for five years now, and she's easily eating 300 grams of carbs, no issue, as a type (laughs) 1 diabetic. And she's actually had to lower the insulin she allows through the continual thing that, like, the insulin that she puts in. I don't really know how what they term term it. That thing. Like, she uses less now on more carbs. And she has a leaner body than ever on more carbs. And I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that she damn well eats dessert. So I think I busted those myths. Yeah. It's it's wild to me when people say that people with diabetes need to do a low carb diet, given that there's like very easily findable research. Like this is not hidden of trials of people with type two diabetes whose type two diabetes is reversed by eating a high carb vegan diet. Now it's not to say that a high carb vegan diet is necessary for this, but it is to kind of say that, well, if this is the case, then this very, very simplistic idea of, oh, if you have diabetes, then you need to have no carbs. You need to go keto. That is just abjectly stupid because the precise opposite of that can also work. It's increase activity levels, manage sleep, uh make sure that you're eating primarily whole foods make sure that the diet's calorie appropriate all of those kinds of things can be done on a low carb diet sure but they can also be done on a high or moderate carb diet and arguably a moderate carb diet is going to be easier to stick to long term it's going to be a lot more varied so you can actually enjoy yourself it's a lot more socially like it'll fit in socially you can go out eat at a restaurant without being weird about it yeah it just Carbophobia pisses me off because there are so many the worst the worst people to for this as well are athletes. The amount of people I have worked with who are good athletes, very strong people, very fast people, great whatever sport it is they're doing, and they're terrified of carbs. And I mean carbohydrates have been at the forefront of sports nutrition for like 50 years. And the only reason that people say that that's old science is because it's very difficult to make a great deal of money by selling carbohydrate powders. So you need to dress it up as some other shit because, I mean, there's a a guy I, um, I have a lot of respect for um, called Alan Flanagan. He, um, he goes by the Nutritional Advocate on Instagram. He, hosts, he co-hosts Sig- Sigma Nutrition Radio sometimes. Like his whole thing is like, we know enough about nutrition now. If no more nutrition research was done, we probably wouldn't suffer for it. At this point, we know enough about nutrition to make everybody in the world healthy. The issue is application and policy. That's it. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna overturn the nutrition that we know now. There might be some things that we can add to it, like some minor things, but 
broadly speaking, for especially for public health nutrition, we know enough. And when it comes to sports nutrition, like the amount of athletes that I work with, and it's like as complex as it needs to be, is like, let's make sure your protein's adequate. Let's shoot for about six to seven grams per kilo of carbohydrates and you'll be fine. <laughs> I want to add on to this nutrition stuff though, where a lot of the time the like athlete nutrition research is useless, like researching stuff for athletes is useless because you can never find people in the same caliber that you can compare and relate to. But the same thing with general population nutrition research, it's useless to go through that route because does that apply to their lifestyle? Is it something that they can specifically do n equals one to it's only good for disproving something than it is anything else because like we said i feel like a lot of research out there these days is just getting pumped out for the sake of it mentally masturbating over the dumbest of shit and i want to leave one last argument here in regards to carbs in a diet and that's if you want to optimize your physique and your performance which is why i'm doing a webinar on this for my girls, which I might just make as a freebie for any one of my clients and then end up as like a charge thing for anything, everyone else, anyone else. But it's a high protein, higher carb diet is probably the most optimal body composition diet you can get because it is carbs that fuel your training and your training is the number one factor in sculpting your body stronger and building muscle i'm gonna i'm gonna leave you to rant something at the end to close it off so i'm gonna just bank that over there but if you're going into a fat loss phase my goal is to keep your carbs as high as possible i would i rather you have 2.2 grams to 3 grams of protein per kilo of protein but i will reduce your protein if I need to give you more carbs to fuel your performance, because it is your training that is going to help maintain the muscle as long as you're having a minimum requirement of protein. Being able to give you excess protein is just a bonus on top. But I will never do that at the expense of carbs, because your carbs are your fuel. And your deficit will not be a deficit anymore. You will have more severe metabolic adaptation if we bring your carbs too low, because not only are you going to look like a sloth with black bags under your eyes going through the day because you're tired as hell and you're lacking energy from trying to live your life. You're going to recover poorly. So you're not going to be maintaining muscle. You're going to be training poorly. You're not going to be maintaining muscle and you're going to look like a flat tick and you'll be complaining that you feel and look fat because you don't even have full muscles anymore because your body's just stressed and you're going to hold more water from that as well. Like there are so many benefits to carbs that people do not think about. It is ridiculous. And I really needed to have my own pedestal to talk on that because I think it is so important. But the thing I wanted to pop to the side for you to tie this with a bow on is people trying to argue, oh, you can still perform on low carbs. Okay. I'll briefly cover one thing and then I'm going to jump to that. So what you mentioned there about um, how you look on a day-to-day basis, it's massive. Um, whenever you train, you're, you're basically using muscle glycogen stores. So how it works is when you eat food with carbs in, blood sugar increases, insulin secreted, and insulin facilitates the storage of those carbohydrates in your liver and your muscles. Um, 
Now, in between meals, your body produces glucagon. And what glucagon does is it goes to the liver and it releases glycogen from the liver into the bloodstream to maintain blood glucose where it needs to be. Now, specifically, it goes to the liver. Muscle tissue is very, very sparse in glucagon stores. Um, so how you can basically think of it is your muscle glycogen is muscle specific. So if you go to the gym and you just do bicep curls, you're depleting glycogen specifically in your biceps. So if you had this hypothetical situation where all of your muscles were 100% saturated with um, glycogen, you could go, you could do 20 sets of 10 bicep curls and go home. Your delts, legs, everything else would still be stocked up with glycogen. Your biceps would be depleted with glycogen. That's how that works. It's that specific. Your body can't like share glycogen from your legs back into your biceps to top that up because it just can't do that. Um, if you personally notice really big day-to-day -day changes in how muscular you look, you're probably not eating enough carbohydrate. Because what that means is that you are depleting and not replacing the glycogen in your muscles. Um, I notice this sometimes myself if I'm not paying enough attention to my nutrition because I haven't tracked for years. Um, some days, if I'm busy or if we're out or whatever, I'll make slightly different food choices and it'll wind up where I probably don't eat as many calories as I otherwise would. Or it might be that I just have a higher fat day because that was the food that I had. Um, if I have like two days like that, I will wake up and I'll look in the mirror and I look like I've never trained before. Um, and this is not muscle loss. This is not body composition change. This is glycogen depletion. I'm depleted. That's all that is. A day of high carbs and it's fixed. Um, but where this can really mess with people is if you're carrying like a little bit of body fat, what it looks like is you look fat now because your muscles are smaller. Your muscles are less full. And so they're no longer pressing up against the fat tissue and making you look big. You just look like you're carrying body fat. And so if you're noticing really big day-to-day -day swings, eating more carbohydrate can probably kind of fix that. Um, so under the last thing that you said about performance, right? Um, I didn't know you were going to mention this, so I didn't have this pulled up anymore. Um, but um, there's a paper that is worth us reading. Um, So 2021, oh, man. hold on. There's a 21 systematic review on this, which I will cite now because I don't want people to think I'm lying. So it's called High Fat Ketogenic Diets and Physical Performance, a systematic review published by Murphy et al. in 2021. Um, what they did, is they took all of the relevant research on ketogenic diets and exercise and they had a look to see whether it was a positive neutral or negative effect on performance and the research was broadly mixed but as they put here at the end of the conclusion overall the majority of null results across studies suggest that a ketogenic diet does not have a positive or negative impact on physical performance compared with a conventional diet however Discordant results between studies may be due to multiple factors, such as the duration consuming study diets. What you tend to find 
is that in research where people have not been on a ketogenic diet for very long, uh, their performance can be maintained. That's because they've still got muscle glycogen. Um, training status. If you are a advanced athlete, it's probably going to hit you harder because you're going to be more able to actually push yourself. Um, people who are relative beginners, you, you can do anything and relative beginners will get fitter. It's fine. You can show a beginner a picture of a dumbbell and they'll build muscle. Um, performance test. On a ketogenic diet, your 100-meter sprint time probably won't go down because that's fueled by the phosphocreatine energy system. If you had to do multiple 100-meter runs, though, likelihood is that null result will turn to negative. Uh, and sex differences. Women theoretically do better on a low-carb diet than men because women at certain points in the menstrual cycle get a little bit better at oxidizing fat. But generally speaking, what you find is that adopting a ketogenic diet is either neutral or detrimental to performance. It is never beneficial. So what that means is that if you are an athlete and you adopt a ketogenic diet, the best you can hope for is that it won't make you worse. And if that's the best you can hope for, it's probably not a good idea. And if you need more to listen on for this, go back and listen to podcast 249 no maybe 249 I think it is with Alan Aragon and there's also wait no it's 254 sorry 254 with Alan Aragon and somewhere around 260 with Dr Scott Forbes he spoke about the power of carbs creatine and weight training in performance and building muscle and getting lean so Take it from a whole lot of experts that carbs are your best friend. So I think with that, we covered so much around blood glucose, around carbs, around insulin, that you'll be able to smell bullshit slash wellness wankery from a fuck ton away. So with that, we love you all. I hope you love us too. So give us a little five-star rating. Tag us if you listen to this or message us because we love doing them. And if there's anything else you want us to cover, we will cover it. This was a request from someone as well. So we will do more requests if you message them to us. Love yous.